Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against rising social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adam and Teen Energy. I'm working on my next book. So as all you regular listeners know, I'm talking to leaders in and adjacent to the oil and gas industry to talk and think about how companies can transform decarbonization aspiration into action. I have a really great guest today, Harry Bocock. He's with McKinsey and Company in London, and he leads their sustainability in the UK. He also leads their relationship with the UN's high level climate champions. He leads their COP process, and he is also their people leader. Uh, he has an interesting educational background with degrees from Oxford and Cambridge in history. And I met Harry in a small gathering on an island not too far from the COP meetings. And you'll hear us talk a little bit about that. I was intrigued by Harry's balance of aspiration and pragmatism. And I wanted to translate that into our work as oil and gas industry leaders. You'll hear some really interesting perspectives on, for example, the role of storytelling in this leadership opportunity that we all have. You can learn more about Harry in our show notes. Here's my conversation with Harry Bocott. Well, Harry Bocott, welcome. And thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So you have one of the world's most interesting jobs, Harry. You interact with companies and governments on the energy transition, and you bridge these worlds where aspiration has to be translated into everyday on the ground reality. Thinking about emerging economies, global conflict, this moment we're in today with a yep. with a really serious energy crisis plus global conflict. Yep. What's your worldview about how climate aspiration can be accomplished realistically? Well, it's a it's a terrific question, Tisha. And I think in your in your context there, you've actually captured what everybody's worldview must be, I suspect, which is that this is complicated, messy, and hard. And I think anyone who pretends that they have clear line of sight in some sort of linear fashion to you know the end point of a net zero economy um, clearly isn't thinking deeply enough about the problems that we face. And of course, we're behind where we want to be. As we think about translating all of those interconnected dynamics into things on the ground that can realistically make this happen. There are a couple of things that I'm particularly interested in. One is where companies are working collaboratively across their value chains to make things happen more quickly. So, you know, a parcels player working with a shipper, working with a bank, working with a fuel cell producer to accelerate the decarbonization of a logistics chain, for example, or the way in which countries are articulating their country plans to to make the inflows of private capital uh, more attractive. These, I think, are different ways of addressing the problem that reflect the interconnectedness of exactly the dynamics that you that you outline. But we all have to be creative and optimistic here because you know as, as you said there are so many moving parts and it is so messy so harry i, I love that and um, i'm already going to go off our plan so here we go <laughs> um because i want to pull on something that you said which is this interconnected nature and so much is interconnected with russia's aggression against ukraine and then the resulting need uh to transform the energy global energy system what do you see as the biggest levers for change and accelerating change? Because as you allude to, we really have like we we have this complexity 
and we have a timeline, uh, you know, to to make change. Is it is it policy? Is it the financial system? Um, is it optimism? Like, where, what do you see are the most important levers that because you engage in in all these different arenas? If we're using interdependency and interconnectedness as our angle into the problem, I see two themes, both of which have to be addressed by a range, a portfolio of levers that span you know, government policy and regulation through to, you know, private sector investment and, you know, individual uh, and societal demand changes. And so with interconnected, this is our theme. I see two that really make a big difference. The first is the unfortunate truth that uh, climate hazard affects the world in many places that also have relatively unstable government institutions and societies. And so the theme, I think, there is around building resilience. So building resilience to the inevitable uh, impact of climate hazard. You know, you, you read the last two IPCC reports, they're absolutely unequivocal about how the inertia that's built into the Earth system means that climate hazard is going to increase. So the first theme, I think, that is absolutely critical is, is you know, adaptation and resilience. And it was pleasing to see that get greater prominence in the narrative in Glasgow last year. The second theme and the second interdependence and feedback loop, I think, relates to how the features that make private finance more accessible are linked together. So if you think about the the macroeconomic factors around size of an economy and its level of debt, around the the, the attractiveness of the investment environment, whether that's exposure to uh, geopolitical risk or the quality of the institutions in the country, and then the level of uncovered climate risk and how they all work together. So if we can stimulate investment in mitigation and adaptation, that can reduce uncovered climate risk, which makes the investment environment more attractive. It also, through another loop, of course, drives growth into an economy. So you can get into these virtuous cycles. So I I would love us to be looking at uh, uncovered climate risk and thinking about insurance mindsets, different ways of socialising that risk, uh, and so on. And when I say insurance mindset, I'm not really talking about insurance, because I think the notion of, you know, a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa paying an insurance premium to deal with the physical risk that they incur as a consequence of emissions somewhere else in the world, that's obviously unpalatable. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about new ways of socializing risk and insurance coverage to make the private finance environment more attractive. I love this idea of translating interdependency into creating virtuous feedback loops because it is inherently optimistic to look Mm. at how to do this well and get us out of this apocalyptic mindset that can be so paralyzing and polarizing. When I last saw you, Harry, we were uh, Glasgow adjacent. We were in Scotland and you were on your way to COP to present some really interesting papers. And I'd love for you to talk about that your key takeaways from that experience, both the, you know, the preparation that led into it and how your work has been received and whether Glasgow is has advanced these positive feedback loops. I think it did. Uh, and I think it advanced uh, it advanced our position much more than typical media or activist sentiment suggests, because I think much of the commentary around Glasgow sought to add up the commitments made and translate them into a temperature trajectory and then assess that against one and a half degrees. And of course, don't get me wrong, the temperature trajectory that we're on uh, is critically important. You know, one of the papers that I presented up there um, looked at the humanitarian exposure to climate hazard in a one and a half or a two degree world, and there are a billion 
more people exposed to climate hazard in that two-degree world. So temporal trajectory really matters. But COP was much more, COP26 was much more about, I think, setting an enabling environment. So if I think about the, the coverage of global emissions now covered by pledges and indeed you know, legally binding commitments, if I think about the language between the US and China, even if I think about the language around coal, of course, which you know right at the last minute was changed from you know phase out to phase down, nevertheless, having phase down was a step forward. If I think about the commitments that went beyond carbon to talk about methane and deforestation, and electric vehicles, and how all of that was supplemented by the mobilization of private capital. What COP26 did, I think, is make net zero an operating principle for business. You know, the question is no longer whether this is going to happen, but but how. And so I think that is an extremely important step forward. But don't get me wrong, of course, you know, we're not where we need to be. There's a load more to be done. And it is, as I said earlier, going to be complicated and messy. Um, if I if I reflect on what I saw happening in Glasgow, the stuff that inspired me most actually were the informal interactions that were happening by virtue of who'd gone to Glasgow, perhaps a little bit by virtue of the fact that, you know, we haven't had a big gathering for a couple of years because of you know, other obvious reasons. But the, the conversations that were happening about how private sector organisations could work together in new ways, could shape government policy to accelerate things, those, those didn't garner the headlines, but I thought they were really important about actually putting real tangible progress behind some of the high level pledges that we've seen. That's so interesting. And and one of the things that was discouraging for, I think, many of our audience, you know, the oil and gas leaders was this was this sense of not having a place at the table. And yet I imagine in the last six months, the world has changed so much that 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 perhaps even that dynamic will change, recognizing the really critical role that international oil and gas companies will play in, in the complexity of the system. Never. Nevertheless, I would love for you to translate this idea that you said that COP26 really made it clear that this is like the like a business fundamental, this component mm, yeah. for our audiences, oil and gas leaders around the world. And when you advise your clients in that space, what what are some of the key takeaways for oil and gas leaders up and down the value chain? What can they take away to be a part of the momentum and the virtuous cycle so that they in the future will be invited to the table? Gosh, I might just think of two big themes. The first is that I think for oil and gas players uh, and indeed for leaders of, of any insti- you know, institution right now, to my mind, the fundamental question is how to create strategic resilience in an era of certain volatility. And so if one of the most important outcomes of COP26 was this notion that net zero is an organizing principle for business, it also, I think, has created the conditions for for volatility. So the demand now to turn pledges into plans to demonstrate real traction against these things is going to far outstrip our ability to supply it, whether that's access to raw materials, whether it's scaling up supply chains that were you know, configured for just in time, perhaps underinvested during COVID, and now have got to suddenly scale up to deliver very different levels of, of throughput. That's going to create demands and supply imbalances, which will be inflationary. We will see price fly-ups on, on commodities. And by the way, all of this logic was being 
laid out before the amplification of geopolitics that we are seeing right now. So an era of certain volatility where commodity prices, finished products will have you know price volatility, where there will be business discontinuity associated with supply chains compounded by uh, physical climate hazard acting on those supply chains. This is a very different world. And also the, the models that oil and gas companies and others will have been using to make their capital allocation decisions will no longer hold true in quite the same way. So, you know, if we look at you know, India, for example, and if you play forward uh, the consequences, the humanitarian consequences of a two-degree outcome, this is 400 million people who will find it too hot to work outside 25% of the time. And set aside what that means for their lives and livelihoods for a moment, if you're looking to make a strategic investment in India, I haven't seen any national GDP level forecasts that take into account the lack of productivity that will come from 400 million people not being able to work outside 25% of the time. So the the heuristics and assumptions that we've historically used to make our business case decisions are going to have to change. And so all of this will will compound the volatility. So, So the first theme that we're talking about to organizations is how do you build that strategic resilience? And there are a bunch of levers, maybe we'll talk about them in a bit, but a bunch of things that we think people can do. I think the, the second mindset that we have is perhaps to use a, a sort of North American phrase from Robert, is how can you play offense, right? We believe that the value to the planet and the value to the shareholder is greater if organizations choose to pivot their capital and their focus into the areas of growth that come from the sustainability imperative. So how can organizations shift their portfolio into faster growing areas? How can they shift their product propositions into ones that play to the sustainability consumer demand? How can they create um, more sustainable operations by leaning out and making themselves more efficient? All of these things, how can they build greater resilience? All of these things will be sources of competitive advantage that we think both accelerate the transition as well as deliver shareholder return. So the fact that those two things are better aligned than they have been before, not not perfectly, but better, we think is um, very encouraging. Mm, that's so interesting. And let's let's you gave us a great indie example. Let's go to to your homeland of the UK, <laughs> and um and 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 maybe you could translate this for us. You had um you had a really nice article where you translate um three opportunities for UK businesses in this transition. And so thinking about a developed economy, I'm curious if if there's some obvious translations into oil and gas companies, whether in the UK or elsewhere, but, but really thinking at a very, like a closer to granular level. So strategic resilience, yes. And then, yeah. and then what? Yeah. Well, so we were doing a piece of work there to try and provide at an economy level an -hmm. understanding of which of the levers is likely to make most difference. Uh, It's an analysis, by the way, that we've done for for many countries. And the three levers that we were applying to the UK's particular economic mix and level of maturity were, you know, reducing costs by reducing your own emissions, producing goods and services that play into the green capex revolution, and then enabling others uh, in your value chain to reduce 
their emissions. And of course, at that level, these levers are absolutely generic and play very well into oil and gas with the particular levels of scope one and two emissions that those organizations have relative to, say, other sectors. What I think is very interesting, though, is that the value-creating answer for the oil and gas player is not a single prescription. Um, you know, every every organization needs to think in classic corporate strategy terms about where its sources of enduring competitive advantage are going to come from. So you will know this better than me, Tisha, but if you look at the way the oil and gas industry is developing right now, there are maybe four different postures that we see playing out, you know, some of which say we're going to be a traditional oil and gas player and our source of competitive advantage is going to be around you know, high grading our existing portfolio and improving our cost resilience so that we and producing the lowest carbon barrels we can, for example. You know, there's another posture that says we want to be a sustainable hydrocarbon player. And so our core portfolio will remain hydrocarbon, but we're going to invest in those decarbonization technologies alongside the, the carbon capture and so on and so forth. You know, there's there's another that says we want to be a transitioning energy supplier. So we're going to diversify portfolio. And then there's a, a, a final posture that says, no, we're going to become a low carbon energy supplier and switch switch out. So you see you see four different postures, all playing in different ways on those three levers that I described, all of which, by the way, I think have a viable shareholder value capture thesis to them. And so what starts to matter then is A, how well you execute, and B, the size of the value pool that you end up playing in. So we did a piece of work that laid out not a forecast, but a what would it take in a given scenario to decarbonize the global economy. And that that showed, you know, future oil and gas volumes falling by 55 and 70% respectively. By the way, that does mean that there will be residual demand, right? Mm-hmm. Many people have felt the coal, I think, is likely to go away in that scenario, but oil and gas not. So the question about which of those architects is right will play out, right? But but you can you can see thoughtfully differentiated strategic positions coming through in oil and gas right now. It's a fascinating time. We will be right back to the Energy Thinks podcast, but are your company's ESG efforts falling behind the sector? Find out by downloading ESG in 2022, Adam Mateen's latest white paper, to find out which moves ESG leaders in oil and gas are making and what's now standard across the industry. Download ESG in 2022 today at energythinks.com. And now back to the show. It's such an interesting time in the posture you didn't mention, but that does also exist is the like, this is all going to go away. And so I think it is interesting. I mean, many in our audience are still deciding if they're going to embrace and engage if they if usually if they're not publicly traded. Right. The investor pressures are different. So it's a really fascinating way to think about that. I've been interviewing. Just on on that. Go ahead. Yeah, please jump in. I I think it is. That's the only posture that I think is certain to fail, because if you believe that it's all going to go away, I think that is a proxy for saying we're comfortable in our existing business model. And by the way, as far forward as we see, you know, we can imagine you know, high levels of commodity prices, strong cash generation, so on and so forth. The players that are adapting to posture one, which is, you know, we remain a you know, core oil and gas, they are making profound changes to their business model. Right. So they will outcompete the players that think it's going away. I and yes, so- I, I absolutely agree. And I think it's really an interesting it all comes down to the time frame that you care about and that you think things will happen. 
The Russia-Ukraine crisis has created an interesting backlash within the industry, which I've been taking head on, which is, see, see, there's more important things than climate. And I'm not arguing in favor of this position, but I do want to acknowledge that that tension within boards, within executive teams is very acute right now in North America. And I think it will be, it'll continue to be interesting to wrestle with that tension. And what I think is a directional change with a global focus on climate. And I'll, I'll give you, I mean, I, I think it's quite clear where you stand, but I want to push on an idea that, ex, that really exacerbates this tension. I've been interviewing companies for my next book and the companies I'm interviewing are working on so one of, of year four scenarios. The greatest struggle is to meet the operational demands of today, which used to be their full-time job, right? Like we're going to, we're, we're going to deliver, we're going to make money, we're going to keep being safe and environmentally conscious. And then this, um, this resilience and this, this posture for the future. And the risk is that companies become split screen and they have like a, like an old business and a new business as opposed to an evolving business. And I'm just curious how you think about that, Harry, and, and how companies, we can really acknowledge that tension of, of meeting the demands of today, which include the financial demands as well as the, you know, making sure the products get where they're supposed to go. What do you, how do you think about that? Gosh, well, this, this is why being a leader at this time is both so exciting and so difficult. I think there is, in one sense, it's very simple. You know, the operational considerations that relate to safety and people and equality, diversity and inclusion and so on are untouched by all of this and remain, you know, inviolable. The second question, though, I think around how to manage a transition with an eye on today and an eye on the future in tandem is is really tricky. And I think there are a number of capabilities, I think, that help organizations to do this well. The first, I think, is, and it's always been true in transformations, but the importance of a change story that can articulate a mid to long term North Star for the organization that articulates why things will be different and better in the future but which can help sustain colleague and investor confidence through the inevitable bumps along the way, that's even more important than it was before because the volatility is going to be greater. So um, those organizations with a clear change narrative or North Star, I think, uh, make a big difference. The second thing I think is around digital adoption, because many, many worry that there needs to be new skills, new capabilities and things required to succeed in the future. And they're nervous about starting that journey. And whilst it may be true that there are new things that are needed in the future, there are plenty of techniques that have been proven at scale in the last decade that can help you get moving. So um, I think the sustainability imperative can be the catalyst for completing the digital transformation of our economy from the last decade. So the full adoption of proven digital technologies, I think, makes a big difference. And the third thing that I think is going to really help is reinventing finance as a source of competitive advantage. You know, we talked a little bit about um, capital allocation models. The notion that finance has now got to be able to run multiple different scenarios at the same time and provide a scenario-based perspective on outcomes. The notion that finance can be a place that hedges not only kerosene for an airline, but multiple different raw material raw materials to protect against income input price volatility. The notion that finance might be a place to build greater circularity into a business model to help create a buffer against volatility of input prices. These, I think, are new thoughts. And those three things together, I think, can help bridge that today-tomorrow uh, divide. Mm, I really, I love that thinking. I 
my thinking about the finance community has been limited to this idea of it being a lever for pressure on the transition. I love the idea of it joining the creative solution um, virtuous cycle uh, mm. in partnership as opposed to almost in opposition or in pressure. So that uh, I'm going to, I'm going to give that some thought, Harry, we're going to, we're going to have to explore that more late later once I digest <laughs> it. Now, I think you hit on something that's, that's critical for this moment for leaders, which is this transition narrative, this change narrative, because employees, millennials and Gen Z now dominate the oil and gas workforce, and they are unequivocal about caring about climate. And I wonder what you think about company culture. You mm. have a firsthand, in addition to advising companies and government governments, you're the, you um, lead people efforts within McKinsey. Right. Yeah. Okay. So can you talk yeah. about culture? And this, and and what are what are going to be the components that prepare a workforce, but also engage a workforce in this transition? A very clumsy segmentation might suggest that uh, very senior leaders in an organization understand some of the strategic imperative to shift a business model, and the younger members of an organization have got more of the zeitgeist that you describe, and so the hardest part of any not any, but the hardest part of many organizations to to transform is that group in the middle that lacks the strategic vision nor has the the sort of more intuitive connection with the issue and so change stories that can really understand how to drive that middle layer of management and get incentives aligned and really find a change story that gives them a sense of meaning and a sense of understanding of how their work fits into a broader picture is going to be absolutely critical but I think the, you know, we've we've written plenty about, you know, how to treat the soft stuff of culture as hard stuff and be measured measured about it and so on and so forth. But we're doing this at a time when societies are opening back up again, largely, you know, Shanghai notwithstanding at the moment. But but we are we're reopening after two extraordinarily traumatic years for employees in organizations. And I think one of the critical pivots now on culture is how to manage a hybrid working model that can be both inclusive and create a you know an exciting value proposition that can retain exceptional talent in the future and the reason why i think it's so important is because because it's got upside and downside risk right you know with get hybrid right and you can end up with a level of flexibility in your workforce with a different level of work-life balance that can help retain with a much more tailored uh, experience for colleagues. But get it get it wrong and you risk creating a, an, an unlevel playing field or a culture of those who are in versus out if you're in the room rather than on the screen and so on. And so being thoughtful about how to create new ways of working and new cultural expectations around hybrid, I think is a terrific opportunity and risk as we embark on the transition, the bigger transition journey that you described. Yes. I've been thinking about that a lot too. This idea of belonging that has become so important, creating an environment of belonging Right. when you're at a distance and trying to navigate a huge transition and have extraordinary high, extraordinarily high standards of a productive workforce is, is, is really challenging. Right. And as you're thinking about that with your own workforce within McKinsey, where does diversity, equity, and inclusion sit in this idea of attracting, retaining, and you know, motivating the talent within the organization? 
I mean, well, it sits, it sits right at the heart of our mission as a firm and is indeed enshrined in the values that we all follow in the firm. Um, but it's really brought to life in three ways. You know, we are a client service organization that seeks to, you know, a- attract, develop, excite and retain exceptional talent. And so we bring ED&I to life through you know, the research and perspectives that we develop that we hope help shape the global debate on this. You know, think about the um, women in the workplace research that we do with um, with Lean In or think about the diversity wins research that we, that we did that I hope help frame and raise the level of visibility of, of, of these topics. You know, we, we serve our clients on it. So we integrate it into the way we serve our clients and we help organizations think about their talent management, their policies, and how they can help retain the best talent for their particular mission. And then finally, we think we are very thoughtful about how we evaluate, compensate um, the policies that we have in place to ensure that we feel we're at the leading edge of all of this. So it, it really is woven through everything that we do. I am so interested in how as a oil and gas companies are engaging and mobilizing their millennial workforce, they're also transforming in these ways. So thank you. Thank you for that, that insight. And we'll link to those reports that you mentioned in in the show notes for our audience. So let's just pivot to one last geeky topic, thinking about (laughs) thinking about oil and gas company. And then we'll talk about you, Harry, but you gave a, just earlier this year in February, you gave a keynote at the um, Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week Summit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll go f- full circle back to where we started, but talking about this idea of government, businesses, collaborating, the, this need for finance in that mix. Can you talk a little bit about how this will play out on the ground, realistically, maybe an example or however you see the players coming together in a meaningful way? Well, this, I think, is one of the fundamental questions. Um, and it's one of the questions that I hope and believe will be at the very top of the agenda in Sharm el-Sheikh in November this year. And and how might I frame this in a sort of way that's not completely esoteric? I think the first thing I think about mobilising finance and making it come true on the ground is that we, we don't have a common understanding of how much finance is needed where and for what. There are lots of different numbers out there, most of them starting with some multiple of trillions, right? And so the first thing I think to say is we did a bit of work trying to draw the thread through all of those different numbers. And the good news is that when you normalize for time frame, for sectoral scope and for geographic scope, the numbers aren't that different. The main difference between the reports is how much of the problem they are choosing to address. That's good. That means that we're not as far away as you might think from having a clear sense of how much is needed. The second bit of it then is to start to say, what are the different characteristics that drive what it takes to mobilize that finance. And I think that different countries with different characteristics will have a different set of different set of biases. Not bias, emphases, for example. So, so if you are a you know, a large economy with relatively little debt and relatively stable institution, the thing that you need to focus on in order to attract private finance is likely to be an investable pipeline of projects. 
And so I think it was in that Abu Dhabi speech, I tried to give an Alice in Wonderland metaphor for the state of climate finance. And I'm not sure it completely landed. But <laughs> the, the, the idea of Alice in Wonderland was to say that climate finance is both simultaneously too big and too small. Too big, because as I mentioned earlier, demand outstrips supply of investable projects right now. Too small, because we know that we need to find new ways of generating new capital, right? And so one of the solutions here is going to be to focus on uh, investable pipelines. There will be there will be other countries though where their level of debt, for example, affects their credit rating, which affects the willingness of private capital to enter into a country. And here you, know, you can see things that uh, places like Belize are doing with you know, debt for climate swaps. I'm not sure yet whether that is necessarily the right model, but it's interesting to see creative applications being made to try and think about how to create a more conducive environment for private capital, whilst also using Belize's natural advantages to help contribute to the problem, solving the problem. You know, there'll be another set of countries where the level of uncovered climate risk is so great that actually building resilience and building this socialized risk mindset that I talked about earlier will be the critical uncover. So so the way I think about this playing out, and we're quite a long way, I think, Tish, from this playing out, is to say, firstly, let's try to get some level of coherence around how much we need where and for what. Then let's try to get, a, if you like, a simplified understanding of how macroeconomics, investor attractiveness, and climate risk play into these feedback loops and work out what different clusters of countries then have different sets of emphases in that, then I think you can start to work on what some practical solutions might be. But we're a, we're a little bit away, I think, from getting consensus and momentum on that. So I really hope that that becomes part of the narrative through to November. These are big, complicated ideas. But what I love about your approach and way of thinking is that there, there actually isn't room for this oversimplification of good energy, bad energy, good actors, bad actors. The interplay is so important to identifying where we can make an effective change, which requires serious people about climate to engage in the complexity. And mm-hmm. I, I find that just in the macro conversation, polarized conversation yeah. about climate, it's missing. But it, but for those of us who care, who want to make a difference, the, the complexity is, in fact, perhaps one of the most important first steps to acknowledge. Uh, so the reason you're here, Harry, on, on the Energy Things podcast is because we were at a several day meeting on an island uh, near Glasgow with just an incredible cast of characters from industry to to very clear-minded environmental activists, artists. And we spent days talking about how to address climate. And it was at times extraordinarily contentious and at other times extraordinarily fun. But, But you were tasked with what I thought was impossible, and I was grateful was not to have this assignment to, to to summarize at the final dinner the what happened, who we were, what we were doing, and you did so. One, you found coherent themes and made a story, but you also did it with humor and grace, and then left everyone feeling a part of things on an optimistic note. That's a gift. Probably didn't just like happen upon you. Um, So I'm wondering, Harry, and you've used the words narrative and throughout the story. What is the role of storytelling in leadership in difficult times? What is the role of storytelling in difficult times? I think if you're telling a story, it's because you want people to stop and think and you use metaphor to get people to think in a 
different and more resonant way. And so what you're really trying to do is just create that split second of additional resonance where people can reframe whatever biases they have coming into a conversation and consider something. And so the, the use of metaphor, the use of humor is risky. You know, on the one hand, if it works, it, and I'm delighted you felt that way about the remarks I gave at the end of our few days together. If it works, it it can lead to a deeper sense of meaning and resonance for for people and greater recall. If it, if it doesn't work, of course, and then in, in this topic, the risk of demeaning the severity of the crisis that we face through humour is quite high. You, you certainly never want to feel you've transgressed there. And as I mentioned, my Alice in Wonderland metaphor in Abu Dhabi perhaps didn't work so well. So you, you, you're continually grasping to find things that land. You're, 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 uh, an Australian poet and commentator, Clive James, said that his work as a poet was to keep turning a phrase until it catches the light. And I love that because you're just continually trying to shape the right form of words until it sparkles. And when you've got that, then just keep saying it over and over again. Oh, Harry, I love that. Because even in the work that I do, so much of what we're trying, we're all who are collaborating in the space trying to capture is opportunities to allow people to leave their identities, leave their polarized mindset that we all wake up with, you know, in in one way or another and create a new space for an optimistic future. And so you're giving me a really nice uh, way of thinking about turning a podcast, turning a weekly email uh, until it catches the light. I love that. What are you looking forward to? This will be our our final question. Leave us with with your view of um, what we all have to look forward to. What are what I'm looking forward to? What we all have to look forward to? Those are those are two quite different questions, Tisha. I, I'm looking forward to my you know my daughter's birthday party and you know, <laughs> Wales, Wales winning the Six Nations next year. Um, and you know what do we all have to look forward to? I think that despite everything that's happening in Ukraine right now, we are going to we're going to see continued traction and acceleration on this journey to net zero. Um, and it's not going to be linear, but I think we're quite quickly going to be able to point to decarbonization of existing industrial assets, flows of private capital into countries that really need it and which previously were unable to find ways of, of sourcing it. I think we're going to see the capital markets and consumer demand continuing to shape this journey in advance of regulation. I think we're going to see the continued tussle between the popular consent that is required to deliver an orderly transition and the leadership that we need, public, private, and social sector to to drive change. I think those I think that's why it's such a fascinating time, fascinating time to be driving and part of such a noble cause. Harry, what a fun, wide-ranging, creative, and inspiring time we've had together. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Tisha. That's our episode for today. Thanks to Harry Bocott for taking his time to share insights with us. There were many game-changing insights for me today, but one was this idea of companies fostering strategic resilience in certain volatility. I think that's really an interesting framing and just a different way of thinking about the opportunity of this moment. I'd like to hear what you found insightful. So reach out at energythinks.com to let me know. If you like what you're hearing, please take a moment 
to rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'd love it if you shared our podcast with three colleagues you think would enjoy this as well. I'd like to thank Adon Rubio, Lindsay Slaughter, and Michael Tanner for making the Energy Thinks podcast possible. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.